0: This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. You can't diss me for listening to the weeds. <laughs> also, where in Canada is Sarah
1: Cliff from? Welcome to The Weeds, Fox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I am Sarah Cliff. With me, as normal, is my colleague Ezra Klein.
2: But where the fuck is Matt?
1: I think he's in Philadelphia. That's ridiculous. I don't know if he survived um, the Bernie or bust crowd. We're not sure if he's really... He's alive. He's doing some great coverage for us. You can read on Fox.com, but unfortunately, he is not here for... For the weeds. So
2: he is not here for the weeds. But if he were here, he may or may not want me to tell you all about Vox's first conference, What's which I want to take is, a moment to talk about. It is called Vox Conversations, uh, and we're trying to do something a bit different because we think most conferences about uh, policy ideas are terrible and boring. So we're inviting 150 people who all have something to contribute to talk about ideas that are not getting discussed in the mainstream right now. So to talk about things like, can we make government work by changing its structure? Should we have a universal basic income? How can we rethink cities to, to actually measure up to what we need in the future? Um, it'll be in D.C. It'll be September 21st to 22nd. Uh, and as I said, it's a very small group. Um, we're, we're trying to make this something that everybody participates in that does not have a bunch of panel discussions. Instead, the participants are able to just put a session on the board whenever they want, and whoever wants to show up to it can. So if you feel like talking about the risk of artificial intelligence and how that merges with tax policy, you can, and you can see if anybody else wants to talk about that with you. Uh, if you want to come to this, and I think a lot of you would actually be interested, we have a website up where you can apply for a ticket. That website is HTTP colon slash, slash conversations dot dot com. So again, conversations dot dot com. All the info is there. Uh, the information for applying is there. Uh, if it doesn't work to come to this one, it might work for the next one. But but I think a lot of y'all would be would be interested and would add a lot to the discussion. I, I really enjoy reading your emails and I think this would be a fun way to meet up. So please check it out. Again, conversations dot Should dot com.
1: All right. Should we, should we jump into it?
2: I think we should jump into so it. So
1: I think um, we are basically just gonna going to have a DNC, Democratic National Convention palooza here on the weeds um, this week and try and get into some of the bigger structural things going on behind the scenes. So we're going to talk a little bit about party structure, what's going on. I know Ezra has a theory he's been developing and talk about the really remarkable thing that happened that we now have a female running for president. Um, No woman has obviously gotten a a major political party's nomination before, Uh, talk a little bit about what that means, what that might mean for government, and then end with some research that's pretty relevant right now, too. To, the, to what we're seeing
2: at the convention. And relevant particularly to a question that I think has been interesting at this convention, which is whether the movement activated by Bernie Sanders will outlast him and has the potential to become, and I want to use this term neutrally, I just use it for for uh, to, to give people an, an idea, a Tea Party of the left, uh, a movement within the Democratic Party that views the Democratic Party's elected officials as the enemy and, and ends up reshaping it substantially. So I, I think there's some very, we've seen some very interesting dimensions of that at the conference, and I think there's some some interesting research that sheds a little bit of light on it.
1: Yeah. But let's start. You have a theory you've been developing. I do have a theory.
2: So uh, I want to say when this is coming out, we are speaking on Wednesday morning. So it is possible that between when I say these words and when this comes out, something fucking crazy will happen. But I, I kind of doubt it.
1: Hopefully it'd be exciting. What I think
2: we are seeing in these conventions, typically conventions are a they, – they show the difference between the Republican and the Democratic parties. Conventions used to play the role often of picking the, the nominee. They don't play that now. They're now a multi-day advertisement in which the two parties explain what it means to be a member, what it means to be a Republican, what it means to be a Democrat. At least that is what normally happens. But I think that the split shown by these conventions has been more fundamental. I think that we are looking at American politics in this election, at at, at the very least at the presidential level, at the difference not just between the Democratic and Republican parties, which is fundamentally an ideological difference, but at a more fundamental difference between a normal political party, a normal American political party, and an increasingly abnormal one. And I'm not going to put too much value judgment on whether the abnormal is good or bad here. But I just want to describe from a little bit of a 30,000-foot level what has gone on. At the Republican convention, you had the party nominate a candidate with very little—basically no experience in government and no real ties to the party structure that candidate, the runner up in the primary, got up on stage in prime time and pointedly refused to endorse that candidate, said instead you should vote your conscience. The past two Republican presidents did not attend the convention nor endorse the candidate. The past two Republican nominees for president did not attend the convention nor endorse the candidate. Um, The candidate ended up counter-programming a bunch of parts of his own convention, giving an interview for an hour on the Golf Channel during night one, calling in to an interview with Fox News while his, uh, while uh, there was a woman talking about her son lost to Benghazi on the stage. The candidate's wife ended up plagiarizing a large passage from the other party's first lady. The next day, things got even stranger. The candidate came out the next day uh, after his big speech and gave a press conference where he said the runner-ups father had been involved in killing JFK. He said the National Enquirer deserved a Pulitzer Prize. He said he didn't want the endorsement of the runner-up. The Weekly Standard, which is a very conservative uh, magazine, said they thought he's mentally unbalanced or not of sound mind was a quote, I think. This is weird. Uh, it's not ideal, it's not liberal or conservative, weird it's just weird and watching the Democratic convention so far has just shown how weird it is because at the democratic convention, what do you have? You have the party nominating a candidate with extremely deep ties to the party's structure, been a member of the party for a long time, has a lot of support from party elites. You have the current president and the previous president and the previous president of that. All um, the the Clinton and Obama are both there speaking, endorsing her. Carter is also doing a video endorsing her. You have the recent nominees there endorsing her. You have a uh, just a lot more demonstrated party unity. You have a convention being run just at a much more professional level, right? The Knights Accord, to their basic themes. Nobody's speech so far has been plagiarized. And I don't say this to like make fun of Donald Trump. Um, and, and I can even imagine somebody listening to this and thinking, that's great. Like, I don't want a normal political party. But I, I do think this is important because I think we typically are so used to thinking about elections as just working across the Republican and Democratic axes that it's important to recognize that this election is doing something more than that. We are looking at a sort of normal political party with a normal presidential candidate and an abnormal political party with an abnormal presidential candidate. And I think we can really predict what will happen if Hillary Clinton becomes president. And I don't think we can predict what will happen if Donald Trump becomes president. And and that worries me in certain ways. There are guardrails on American democracy. There are norms that we tend to abide by, norms that we force the political parties to abide by when when nominating candidates, norms of experience, of qualification, of temperament. And the Republican Party very unusually has managed to nominate a candidate who busts those norms. And It's hard, I think, to stay kind of shocked about that and to keep seeing it. But the conventions have really been a reminder that something is going on there that is not normal, that is not what it was like for Republicans in 2012 or 2008 or 2004 or 2000. And that is also one of the real cleavages of this election.
1: So I definitely agree with you that the Republican National Convention was nothing normal, that there was so much weird going on, like starting with the plagiarism Going into just the rest of the convention, Donald Trump's bizarre, like Hunger Games-esque entrance. There's just like a lot of things <laughs> you normally don't see in um in a convention. But I wonder if you're describing the Democrat like if you're describing the Democratic National Convention as more normal than it actually is. Because I think the one thing you left out when you're summarizing it is the tensions that have been happening with the Bernie supporters, where you have some things happening that I think are quite weird and not expected with Sanders. So so a lot of this, it doesn't seem like it was super well orchestrated. It was happening off C-SPAN. But you had a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, you know, walking out of the convention, some of them trying to draw hand-drawn signs when there were only certain approved signs being given out, those supporting Hillary, that there is this kind of undercurrent of tension, I think, in the Democratic Party that has not been as present as, as at other conventions that I've covered. I think if you look historically, like when I think back to, I guess 2012 isn't a super fair analogy because you had a re-election, but even in 2008, you didn't have the the Hillary runner-up supporters, you know, showing up with hand-drawn signs or like walking out of the convention or maybe... There were hand-drawn Hand-drawn, but you know this like, you have official Obama signs, but no, they're trying to sneak in markers so they can draw. Uh, anyways, it doesn't seem like the tension was quite as... As strong, I kind of wonder, you know, is this something I'm curious, like since you've been thinking about these issues, is it something specific to the Republican Party or, or is it something larger that we're seeing like some possible like preview of with the Democrats They could go either way? But is this tension something that's specific to one side or is it possibly more more global than how yes. you're describing it?
0: If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzell-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try try out something new. Um so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com/weeds. So you go to naturebox.com/weeds uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com/weeds.
2: Let me make the case for and against the idea that the, the Democratic Party convention has been unusual. On the one hand, Unlike Ted Cruz, we're talking about, we're talking a lot about Democratic Party tensions, but Bernie Sanders moved to nominate Hillary Clinton by acclamation. He gave a fulsome speech endorsing her, right? Completely like no hedging at all. Just like got up on that stage, last speech of the night, went the next morning to the California delegates breakfast, which is where the kind of booing Bernie supporters were and told them, hey, it's real easy to boo. It's not easy to look your children in the eye and say, I helped elect Donald Trump president. So. On the one hand, there's actually uh, certainly at the politician level a lot of party unity happening. On the other, you're definitely right that there has been, uh, particularly on the first day, there wasn't as much. It seemed to me on the second day, actually, but on the first day there was there was certainly some booing and some internal con- internal to the convention delegate activism. The question is, what is that demonstrating to us, actually? In 2008, there were the Pumas, which I'm I'm sure you remember, right? The sort of Hillary uh, diehards. And they got a ton of press coverage day one. I remember because I was one of the people who had to cover them to some degree. And it was like a big storyline of the election. What they did not do was disrupt internal convention proceedings. Now, one way to read that is that the Pumas were not as intense as the Bernie supporters. That's not really how I remember it, though. I remember them being really intense. And I I mean, you can go up and look at this coverage uh, look, and look it up. What I do think is going on, though, is that Bernie Sanders' supporters, his particularly diehard supporters who became delegates, are drawn from the left, right? The real left, like people who go to protests. And what they are very comfortable with is protest movement tactics, right? Interrupting big meetings, booing, chanting, making their own signs. And I think in a way where never Trumpers were not actually protesters and Pumas were not actually protesters, like the Bernie Sanders uh, diehards were protesters. Like that's who ended up on the delegate slate. So on the one hand, I think you're right. On the other hand, I do wonder if this is a little bit of a trick of the light Right. That we're not seeing a movement that is very different than those ones or it's really not different in numbers. We're just seeing a different level of activist sophistication within that movement's ranks at the convention. Now, I do think that the broader thing you're saying that there is certainly some evidence the Democratic Party is also tipping in a direction that could lead to a a Tea Party like uh, movement within it. I think there's some evidence for that. I really do. I am not at all sure that we won't look back at 2016 as an important way stop on the way to the Democratic Party fracturing as well. I just am sure it's not happening yet, right? That everything happening is currently within the normal boundaries. Having a couple supporters of the other candidate boo while the other candidate like endorses the runner-up. It's just not that weird. Um, it's not like the other candidate getting on stage and telling people to vote their con. Right? Like that's that happened in 1980, the Democrats, um, more or less, with Ted Kennedy. But I look at this, and the Democratic Party's convention just looks to be within bound within the boundaries of politics to me. And the Republican Party's convention, in ways that I think it makes us feel biased and weird to say clearly, just seemed outside. It seemed like something different.
1: How do you think through like where this leaves Republicans? So they're in this like weird, abnormal moment now that it kind of hit you in the face watching it, but it was kind of expected as you watched the Donald Trump become the nominee, like as there were these steps taken to get to this abnormal, weird place. But how does this shape your view of kind of like what the what the fuck happens next coming (laughs) out of like if we're in weird politics now? Like what's – and I imagine a lot of that, you know, rests on the election and like what happens there.
2: Yeah. So one is a lot of it rests on the election. <laughs> if Donald Trump wins, then the Republican Party becomes a party of Donald Trump. And by the way, that doesn't – that could mean total fucking disaster, right? I, I I do not at all put it outside the realm of possibility that Donald Trump would be a historically catastrophic president and potentially even get impeached. So we'll see what happens if Trump wins. I think the the likelier outcome, not the – Not the only possible outcome, but the likelier outcome is Trump loses. And then the Republican Party sort of has to pick up the pieces. And then you get into this really interesting question of was this a blip or a portent? Do younger, slicker politicians do what Trump did? And Trumpism becomes Republicanism, and they just figure out how to dress it up. This happened with Perot. Um, the Republican Party ended up absorbing a lot of Ross Perot's message. The contract with America the Newt Gingrich ran on borrowed a tremendous amount from Ross Perot's uh, third party run in 92. I am a little skeptical. I actually have changed my mind on this. Uh, early in the campaign, I thought Trumpism was a force that, if anything, was being held back by Donald Trump, that he was... Maybe a very uh, visible messenger, but he was a very flawed messenger. And if they could get a more sophisticated messenger for these ideas, the ideas would actually work better. And then as I watched and sort of thought a lot about the mechanisms here, I came to think that Trump is a little bit more of a one-off. Now, it's not to say that there won't be some echoes of him. You know, I think the Republican Party will become more skeptical of free trade deals, things like that. Like, I think there's some stuff on the margin. And immigration, he's far out there. on it. But remember, Republicans have already killed comprehensive immigration reform before. They've always been pro-building more walls and more border security. So I'm just not sure how much farther they're going to go. I'm not even sure how different his position is from the Republican, like mainstream conservatives even now. So the reason I'm becoming increasingly skeptical Trumpism will survive Trump is that – The reason he was able to do this really hard thing, which is run for president outside the normal boundaries of the party, run for president without money from the party, run for president without backing from the party, run for president without institutional support from coalition partners of the party, run for president without um, endorsements from major players in the party, is that he was able to, he was able to self-finance, even if it was a loan to his own campaign. He did manage to just give his campaign a lot of money. That was number one. Um, And so that, made him immune to the party's role in choking off funds. So that was not unique to Trump, but you need to be a billionaire or a hundred millionaire to do it. So that's one. Then you have number two, which was that... The party plays a real role in getting candidates' media attention. Like, think back to Jeb Bush, who turned out to not even really be a player in this election. But we gave him a ton of media attention, and the reason we did was the Republican Party was signaling in every way it knew how, like, this guy is serious, right? He's giving him endorsements, it was funneling money. So we paid a lot of attention to Jeb Bush, despite the fact that he wasn't a great speaker, wasn't that high in the polls. I mean, there was something particularly impressive about his campaign at the time that he was getting coverage. Trump was able, again, to short-circuit that because he's such a celebrity right? That the media just covered everything he did. And then because he is such a shameless like reality show contestant, he just was very smart about continuously saying inflammatory things to make sure that he never left the headlines. And I just don't think there are that many people who can merge the money that gave Trump freedom from the party with the celebrity that gave Trump access to the press, with the shamelessness that gave Trump this kind of outrage-based strategy and turn that into a campaign. And I think that if you don't have those things, it's very likely that the party can stop you. Now, I could be totally wrong. Um, I'm not I'm not convinced that uh, I'm, I'm right about this by any means. Laura Ingram gave, I think, a really interesting speech at the Republican Convention showing, uh, I think, a much slicker version of Trumpism. To some degree, Donald Trump Jr. showed off a slicker version of Trumpism. But I, I think that if Trump loses... There's going to be a lot of I told you sewing in the party. There's going to be a lot of people like claiming that they, uh, that, that, that they saw this coming and trying to profit from it. To some degree, I think Ted Cruz did something very smart at the, the very end of the game saying, this is going to be a disaster and I wash my hands of it. Like you can look at me when you guys are all trying to pretend you weren't part of this too. But I think it's going to be hard for somebody to be Donald Trump again because I think the things that make Trump Trump are unique and... The reasons it was able to evade the normal systems that would stop someone like Trump are not going to work for someone who's just pulling Trump's ideology into a more traditional package.
1: So I want to kind of think through the opposite version of that. So like, what would be the world in which this continues? And kind of like the question it raises for me, is there like a world where the Republican Party kind of internalizes a lot of what Trump did. It says, like, look, this guy got more people out to vote. He, like, mobilized a part of the country that we have not been able to reach with the way he was talking about issues, with his, you know, willingness to really, like like you said, be very shameless and, like, keep saying incendiary things that I think we saw as incendiary, but really attracted a large part of the country in the way I don't think any of us expected going into this. In a way, there's always an expectation there'd be something that would be off-putting, but instead kept attracting a larger attention. I think there's two questions here. One is if Republicans come out of it saying that was a bit of a disaster, but like, you know, Trump was outside the mainstream. He didn't have infrastructure. You know, he wasn't doing barely any advertising. Like he was not a traditional candidate in ways that hurt him. If that's the idea that they come away with, that there's some good ideas here that mobilized more people— is it possible to basically move that into a party structure? Or like you're saying, does it, is it something that necessarily has to exist outside of a mainstream? Like, does it have to exist in opposition to this organization? Or if Republicans kind of wanted to co-opt the message and the ideas, would it be, could you see like Trumpism continuing? It might feel somewhat subtle, you know, it might not feel as brash as Donald Trump talking to you, but a shift in strategy that essentially Reflects, like what Donald Trump has taught them about their electorate and then their voters. I think
2: it's good in, in that hypothetical to like really get down to what are the ideas of Trumpism, because I think we talk about Trumpism and, and we're not super specific about this. So, like, let's go through them. Right. There is opposition to free trade deals. Uh, the Republican Party's major interest groups really hate that. And I don't think free trade deals – I think the evidence is pretty clear on this. They are in a, a very important issue for a minority of the population, but they're not a massive motivating uh, political force in American life. They're, they're, they're just not. Um, but I definitely could believe that the Republican Party would become more skeptical of trade deals. I, I think that's possible. Like, remember, in the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton came out against TPP, which she helped start up. So you can, you can definitely see the political system absorbing that skepticism of, of free trade deals. But I think that if you look at what is really behind Trumpism, people talk a lot about how Trump is fighting the political correctness culture. And I think it's really interesting the way people talk about this because I think that they want to like slot Trump into an argument that is happening at the elite level about like college commencement speakers and safe spaces and trigger warnings and and those kinds of things. That is not the kind of political correctness Trump is fighting. Trump is fighting the political correctness that says – you shouldn't call Mexicans rapists and murderers, that says that when there is a terrorist attack from a lone nut affiliated with a tiny, although very dangerous terrorist group, you shouldn't blame all Muslims everywhere and try to shut down all Muslim travel to and from the United States. Trump is fighting the kind of political correctness that says that when a woman questions you at a debate, you shouldn't say, well, she was bleeding out of her whatever. That is actually not a political correctness I think that most of the Republican Party really wants to question I think they do not like hearing about Black Lives Matter all that much Um, and I and I'm not saying they don't think Black Lives Matter I'm saying that I, I think they dislike a lot of the discussions of institutional racism and things like that but A lot of members of the Republican Party find like what Trump is saying, that an American judge with Mexican heritage just by nature cannot be an unbiased judge on on a Trump case. They find that pretty abhorrent. And not just that. They think it's really dangerous for their long-term prospects. So if you're the Republican Party looking at this and you know that Trumpism has an appeal to your base, but you end up losing this election to Hillary Clinton, who you should have beaten. It's a third term for the Democrats the political science models say that Republicans have an edge. Hillary Clinton is an extremely unpopular politician who routinely polled Marco Rubio and John Kasich in polling. Um, you should be able to win this election. If Marco Rubio were the candidate, I think Republicans probably would win this election. And I think that you know, if Republicans now go from getting whatever it was, roughly 30 percent of the Hispanic vote to getting 18 percent of the Hispanic vote or 12 percent of the Hispanic vote and just lose to someone they shouldn't have lost to, I don't think they're going to want to adopt that. The, the really hard thing for, about Trumpism for the Republican Party is that it, it puts them in a double bind, that the place where their base wants them to be is anathema to their long-term national prospects. And we saw this in 2012, like after 2012, where Mitt Romney did much less of this kind of thing than Trump, Lord knows, but it had some of his self-deportation rhetoric and that kind of thing. The Republican Party, the RNC, came out with this autopsy, this report where they basically said, like, to be a national party in the future, we need to be much more open and welcoming and inclusive. We need to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Trump is the opposite of that, is likely to lose a more winnable election than Romney lost. And... I think that the party is not going to want to go in that direction. But that is the real lane of Trumpism.
1: Right. And feels like a direction they're being pulled in. I think, you know, earlier when you were saying they don't want this, like I was thinking through like, well, who is the the they there? And I think it's the people like writing those reports, the people doing autopsies of the Republican Party. And I think it's a struggle. And it kind of like takes us back to like why we're in this abnormal moment right now. I think it's a lot of reflection between like the they of the people writing the autopsy report and the people who are voting in the primary season that, and this isn't exactly giant news, but a, a huge divide between what they see their future of the Republican Party as. And I don't know how the Republicans like transition smoothly through that. Like they did the autopsy. They have a sense of like where they want to go. And then the exact opposite yep. happened. Um and I don't know where that leaves them, kind of seeing this is what we think works and this is the thing that mobilized a lot of voters, like got a lot of people excited in a way that they weren't before and like how they kind of like reckon with like which path they end up on after this.
2: Yeah. And and as you say, there is not a single decision making body Um, to the to the extent there seemed to be one in 2012. It completely failed. So the question is, will the sort of spontaneous emergent forces that shape the next Republican Party or the next iteration of the Republican Party, like where will they go? Who will they be comprised of? What will they be like? It is possible for a party to make decisions that keep it persistently at 46% in the polls. Right? That is a totally plausible thing. Um, that People feel very strongly about certain things and they, they just will end up being a little bit less popular than the other party. It's also possible for them to completely reform themselves and I think a lot of it just depends On assuming Republicans lose, um, which again is not, it's not a sure thing by any means, how a lot of Republican voters absorb that loss. Right? Do they absorb it as Democrats did? As Democrats did at a number of different points, but particularly in ninety two, and then I think again, um, in some ways in some ways wrongly, but again in two thousand and four by saying we need to moderate, right? I mean, if you remember in, in two thousand and four, like after John Kerry lost, Democrats had this like national freakout over did they represent heartland values, had they become too much the party of like you know, diversity. There are all this talk about how gay marriage was what had lost the Democrats election, even though Kerry didn't support gay marriage. I mean, there's a real cultural freakout that led, particularly in the '06 election, to finding a lot more culturally conservative and to some degree just conservative candidates to run in different areas. And then it turned out that Barack Hussein Obama won the presidential <laughs> election and Democrats were wrong about yeah. what was going to work. But that, I mean, that's one way for a party to absorb a loss, whereas another way, which is what Republicans did after Mitt Romney in 2012, is to say, like, fuck it, we're going to go harder. Like, we're going to double down and do something like Trump. And I mean, you could continue to, I mean, you could go from Trump to Ted Cruz, and Ted Cruz, I think, also does not represent very much of this country. So I, I think Republicans are, are in a tough space here. But I also think, not to, not to totally skip over this election, I am personally nervous about Donald Trump in a way that I never was about Mitt Romney or John McCain or John Kerry. I mean, you know, I agree or disagree with different candidates in in different measure, but we've not run many who I think are just manifestly unfit for the job, who are clearly – something that American politics has not dealt with much before and does not really have good systems to deal with Trump clearly has very strange ties to Russia I don't think he's a puppet of the Kremlin but his advisors have made a lot of money working with Russia and Russia clearly did a hack of the DNC I mean the the at this point this intelligence agencies very much think that the DNC Act was a Russian was a Russian play meant to and released in a way to to try to whether it's to try to screw with the election or just um, stir some shit up. Who knows? But, you know, it, it doesn't look good. Trump is a guy who's clearly vengeful. Um, you know, he sat the Ohio delegation in a shitty seat, even though it was like a convention happening in their state, just because like they didn't vote for him. He's been running around saying that Ted Cruz's father helped kill JFK because like Ted Cruz opposed him in the primary. You know, what does a guy this vengeful do with the tools of the executive branch behind him? What does he do with the IRS? What does he do with regulations? You know, there's a lot of power to uh, exact retribution from that office. You know, what does Donald Trump do on a night like the Turkey coup when NATO suddenly has to come together? And particularly given that, like, remember, on the night of his vice president speaking, he went to the New York Times and said, just like off the cuff, that he might not honor our NATO group. Like, I don't think this is okay. And I think that one of the hard things is is that as we get into the conventions, as we get into nominees, we're just subsuming this as a normal Democratic versus Republican election. And I don't think it is that. I don't think the real difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is tax policy. I think it is temperament and respect for the norms of American democracy. And I think it is really hard, given the protocols we have in journalism, to say over and over and over again, like, what's happening right now is not okay. Like, this is not we don't know like where we are right this is not territory we have mapped this is not a guy we understand this is not financial ties we know how to like track and we get enough signals on it like again the convention was very strange but, but it also like normal we're just in a yeah. strange space it, it
1: almost like it felt like it normalized it in a way like watching yeah. um like the roll call vote yeah where it just like felt like you know it was the same thing over that we've seen that's like yep. iconic like and however many delegates were the next president of the United States, Donald Trump, like this very normal seeming nominating process that felt like it was like layered on top of this abnormal thing that was happening um, kind of as much as like the conventions felt abnormal. I felt like they also they brought a sense of like normalcy to like an, yeah, insane, right. um, an insane election season. You know, there's some talk that you might see um, delegates have a coup, like try and nominate someone else, like have a contested convention that didn't really happen in any sort of real way. Like you did have Ted Cruz's speech. That was certainly abnormal. But actually, like the convention, you know, the protests were way less extreme than we thought they would be. The nominating process was like super smooth. So, you know, there is abnormalcy to it, but at the same time when, like, I think of it in the span of the kind of batshit nomination election we've had so far in 2016, it felt like a normal event. Like, it had the features of a nominating convention that, like, we expect from these sort of things.
2: Yeah, it's only, I think, if you thought about it and, like, right. really looked at you like, wait, no. <laughs> I think it was um, our, our editor, Kay Steiger, who had this great line where she called it the uncanny convention. Mm-hmm. It sort of looked normal, but, like, if you, like, wait, no, that's not a real person. You know, that's, a, like, that's three boys standing on top of each other in a trench coat. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and I think it really had that quality. That may be a good segue, though, to talk about the other roll call. Yes. At the Democratic that, Convention, that's a good, which that's a sort of a great segue. Which is sort of a fascinating moment.
1: So we now live in a world where a woman has been nominated for president, and that was not true yesterday when we woke up and kind of a big fucking deal. Um, we, we've talked about this issue before on the weeds. And I remember very specifically having a conversation with Ezra and Matt about like why does this matter? And I think you guys were pushing the point that I was kind of pushing back on that you do know, having women in office might lead them to govern differently, that they might, you know, be more willing to, like, change the way their office works, like make it a workplace where someone who has a family, where women who's taking care of children can succeed. Um, I was generally resistant to that. And I have changed my mind by reading a lot of political science research and become really convinced that there is likely, you know, going to be a very substantial difference in how a woman in the White House would govern. And the thing that has convinced me is reading a lot of, so we don't have research on what how female presidents in the United States govern because we haven't had a female president. We do have lots of research on how women in Congress govern. And something that struck me as really remarkable is a study that uh that, that really shaped how I think about these issues is a study by a political scientist named Michelle Swartz, who basically looked at what types of legislation different representatives um, sponsor. And what you found, as you'd expect, is that Democrats sponsor more women's health legislation than Republicans. But the thing that really surprised me was that if you look at liberal men and liberal women you still see liberal women sponsoring twice as much women's health legislation as men. If you look at conservative men and conservative women, you see the exact same gender divide, that when you really isolate gender, there is a significant difference in in what sort of issues people want to bring attention to. And really, it's part of a larger body of research that has really made me think that, you know, the experience someone is bringing to a job is going to have... Pretty significant effects on the way that they govern, and that voting for women is actually vote. It does seem to be, you know, whether you like it or not, like voting for more attention to women's issues.
2: I mean that that definitely seems right to me. Also, to say that I think representation is important, Um, visual representation. I I am very uh, affected, and I I I don't just mean influence, but I mean like emotionally affected by the research showing over and over and over again, how important it is for people to be able to imagine themselves doing different kinds of things. And, and I, you know, you see this discussion all the time, like you see it around TV shows and and panel discussions and and people are always, you know, and people pushing like, Hey, like why is Marvel, you know, not having any uh, female driven superhero movies. And, you know, some people listen to that and say like, well, who fucking cares is a superhero movie. But, but people care. And I think you want to take that really seriously that it is. And I think the research really backs this up that the idea of not being able to see yourself as the kind of person who does X really makes it harder to become the kind of person who does X. There's never been a woman president. There's never been a woman vice president of what we female vice presidential nominees, but never a female vice president. And so little girls have never been able to look at the television and see a woman president on it. And I think that matters. I mean, something Michelle Obama's speech, which is a a pretty powerful speech talked about, was that young African-American boy who came into the White House and asked the president if their hair was the same. And it led to this like amazing photo that still hangs in the White House today of President Obama bending down while this little black boy touches his hair. And that matters. Um, so I, I think you're right to say like it'll matter in policy, but I also think it'll matter in some way that is a little bit hard to see now or hard to measure, and it's not going to change anything in two years or four years. But just in terms of Women running, I think it just becomes less weird, less daunting, and I think that happens not just at the presidential level but but pretty far down the line.
1: One of the kind of stunning things I've learned doing some of this research is in nineteen ninety seven the United States ranked forty first um, for women in government. We have since fallen to um to ninety first oh wow, like we are falling behind and falling behind fast, so we've been gaining women in Congress, but not nearly as fast as other countries have and when you look into the research, why it's really about women running, like it, women get elected at the same rates as men do, but there are just so many fewer women candidates. Um, Pew did a survey of like who runs for office and they found about a quarter of candidates are female. And the things that hold women back are certainly not qualifications. Like the women are, you know, graduating from college from graduate school, similar, at, at, you know, similar rates, if not higher than men. It's, kind of like seeing yourself as a candidate, like, there's a political scientist at um, American University, Jennifer Lawless, who's done all this great survey research. And she basically finds that women just don't see themselves as much as candidates. Like they don't see themselves as competitive. They don't see themselves as like a good political orator um, in a way that men do. If you survey, what's really been interesting about her work is she surveys like lawyers and business people and like people who'd be likely to run for office and ask them like, do you think you'd be a good member of Congress? Like, Do you think you'd be good at delivering speeches? And the gap is just remarkable at how we picture ourselves. And, you know, talking to her, talking to other political scientists, that is where the challenge is. There was this quote I got that was like both great and depressing, you know, from one political scientist saying, you know, there are millions of men who wake up every day and think I would be a great congressman. There aren't women doing that if there were that would likely help solve a representation problem like these women would run and like from everything we know about gender and elections they would win as at equally high rates as men but it's like that initial step towards running is like the place where where, why we're falling behind internationally
2: it's so interesting and so i just did this long uh, profile of hillary clinton and or an essay about Hillary Clinton or something about Hillary Clinton. It's and great. Read it on Vox.com. You can search Hillary Clinton Vox listener uh, in Google and you'll find it. There's a lot going on in that piece. But one of the things going on in it was I was trying to answer this question of why Hillary is considered so much worse as a campaigner than she is uh, as a governing figure, right? Why people like her so much more when she's secretary of state or um, a senator than when she when she's campaigning. And something that I really became sensitized to reading, the doing the piece and reporting it out was that we gave women the right to vote in this country, guaranteed the right to vote in 1920. Uh, there was a woman who sent her state's delegates to Hillary Clinton um, at the convention who was born. She was 102 years old. She was born before women had the right to vote. So it's that recent. It is within one human being's lifetime that in America, women were not guaranteed the franchise. And... I don't think you need to posit any grand patriarchal conspiracy to suggest that the way we've structured campaigns, which is a process created by men, dominated by men, and until reasonably recently in in, a, in American history, limited to men, might just favor male traits. And one of the traits it favors, and, and you just sort of referenced this, is talking is, is seeing yourself as somebody who like gets up and speaks confidently in front of crowds and like projects. And these are very, they're not, it's not that no women do this. It's that it is something we socialize men to do pretty pretty easily and that, that we are, are not as, we do not socialize women to do in the same way. And something that uh, was, uh, I really came to believe doing this work was that Hillary Clinton has a lot of leadership skills that are very important when you're actually governing, she's very good at finding consensus with people. She's a, in a way that really appears to be unusual and important. She's a, a very talented listener. Um, and if that doesn't sound that impressive to you, I really urge you to read the piece because it's about trying to unpack what that means. But has a lot of these much more stereotypical female leadership and communication traits and they work for her. They, they make her very effective uh, in many ways. And they also helped her win the election where she was not a great public communicator, but she built a huge coalition, had all of the endorsements, had the interest groups on her side. And that was her firewall against Bernie Sanders, who more stereotypically was a great communicator, was very confident giving a speech, was was very charismatic. But these things matter. And, and to your point about political systems, this I don't know if there's research to back it up, but it's something I was thinking about during it. I wonder whether it's really a coincidence that a lot of the political systems that have already had women lead the country are systems where the lead, the prime minister is chosen by the prime minister or chancellor or whatever is to some degree chosen by his or her colleagues. So places like the UK and Germany and Israel and and India and so forth. There's obviously a large democratic element to this, but less so than in modern American politics, right? It is more important in those places to be someone your fellow legislators are really impressed with and really like working with. That's how it was in earlier in American life, too, when conventions often show as party nominees. But it's not been that way since at least the 60s or the 70s. And, and we were a pretty sexist society back then. So I, I've wondered before whether one reason it's been harder for American um, politics to, to raise women to the highest office is that we really emphasize a selection process that is oriented around public-facing communication, whereas other systems um, often emphasize a process that is at least more influenced by the opinions of other elites who have worked with the various candidates and such that, you know, the qualities women bring to leadership that are very, very important are able to get uh, appreciated in those systems and and are harder appreciated in ours.
1: So presuming we stay in our presidential election system where we have the general election, like that stays the same. It seems hard to imagine a campaign that was less public facing, but it might just be like, because that's the campaigns we know, like a campaign where people give speeches and they do these big talks. And like, you have a campaign that's really been developed by men and for men. Is there a way that the presidential nomination process, even like the congressional nomination process, changes in a way to like showcase the skills, you know, the things that like Clinton was good at, the things that could be quite good in government? I I think you write in the profile, you know, when Hillary did this like listening tour in New York, she was like essentially just mocked and laughed at. But like you said, it's actually like a good trait to have, like something you might want to elect for. I'm curious like how you think about, the playing field that like going forward and whether this just like remains like a shitty environment for women or if it like actually improves as more women enter it
2: i, I don't i don't know I, I don't see it changing much in terms of its emphasis on public facing communication i don't think we're moving to a parliamentary system um even though i think there there's some appeal to that idea next
1: time on the waves <laughs> yeah right
2: um but i do think one it's worth saying that the fact that some traits, trend male or trend female, That that's a statement about aggregates and not about individuals. Elizabeth Warren is clearly a, like a really talented like public communicator. She's very good at giving speeches in front of a bunch of people. And and Carly Fiorina on the Republican side, I think, was a very talented public communicator. She was, I thought, the best debater in the Republican field. So uh, to, you, to your, the point you were making earlier, if you have a lot more women running, I think you will also just have a lot more women getting elected. So that seems like the first and most important um, question to to solve, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably a pretty built-in bias towards male-associated skills in American political campaigns, and 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 I'm uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that's going to go away anytime yeah. soon.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting fundamental question to like any gender gap is do do women adapt to the system and become more like men, or does the system adapt to having like different people in it and become like more accommodating to other yeah. skills and like it seems like uh, it seems like the evidence we have suggests women like working into the system and like getting the public speaking skills that are necessary. But I'm curious if there's like any if there will be any movement in the other direction of like the system adapting.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think the, the the version of optimism here is that you don't need that. I mean, it's not like the entire American population runs it's so few people actually run for office. right? 2 in like, fact, it, according to Pew. Really? 2% of Americans 2%, run for any office? Any office,
1: like, you know, huh. school board. Um, That's higher any... than I would have thought, actually. Well, now, now you know.
2: Now I know, the more you know. <laughs> um, but so you need, like, you, you need a, enough women with these kinds of skills to run, and I think there are more than enough women with these kinds of skills to run, which is why I think that the stuff that you're thinking about and, and focusing on is probably more salient. I think this is interesting. Um, you know, and... But who knows? Like, I do think one interesting thing about Hillary Clinton's campaign is that she got really lambasted for running a campaign so built on relationships, so built on endorsement, so built on rolling up the Democratic Party, and rather than see that as a innovative way of leveraging her skills and more female driven skills to do something really fucking hard, which is be the first woman to ever win a major party's nomination. She got excoriated as a tool of the establishment. I mean, I always thought there was something really interesting about the way this is not really meant as a criticism of him or her, but Bernie Sanders was in Congress for 20 some years. He got virtually no congressional endorsements that ended up being like proof of his purity. Right, Hillary Clinton um, got tons of congressional endorsements, and that was sort of proof of like a semi-corruption, right? And it's one of these ways in which you know, even when you're able to change the game, we just saw the way Sanders ran uh, a campaign based on charismatic speeches as legitimate in a way that we didn't see the way Hillary Clinton ran as legitimate, and, and that's the kind of thing that I think maybe could be changed and probably will have to be. All right,
1: should we move on to our? Research as it applies to news of the week.
2: I will jump into this. Um, There's uh, been a lot of interesting research, and there's a book coming out by by two political scientists, Grossman and Hopkins, about asymmetries and how the Democratic and Republican parties are constructed. And what they basically find is that the the Democratic Party is a pretty transactional party. It's a coalition of interest groups that are united by different policies they all want. The Republican Party is more philosophically oriented. It's or, or as they would call it ideologically oriented. It's much more united around an idea of conservatism. So it ends up being a lot less policy focused. This is a really interesting way of thinking about the Obama era. One reason that Republicans and Democrats have trouble working with each other and understanding each other is they want different things. Democrats really want the little piece of policy they're gonna get and they're willing to make a lot of compromises to get there. Republicans are much more oriented towards following a guiding philosophy. And so transactional uh, horse trading around little policies is actually not that important to them. So Democrats were always confused. Republicans won't take their deals and Republicans never trust the deals Democrats are trying to take. And I think it's because both sides project onto the other Democrats, assume Republicans are like them and just like, you know, want to like get their policies in and Republicans assume Democrats are actually like them and are trying to, take the government towards communism in much the way Republicans are actually trying or believe they're trying to bring up about a much smaller government. And that's an end in itself. But what I think is really interesting this year is that I think both parties have to some degree shown a deep tendency in the other direction. Uh, certainly the Republican Party has been overwhelmed internally by a insurgency I think you can argue whether it's philosophical or not, but it's not it is not traditional conservatism, whatever it is. um I, I'm not sure it's transactional, but in some ways, I think Donald Trump is a much more transactional candidate than Republicans typically run. He's constantly talking about deals. You'll get this. He'll make your trade deals better. You know you've been you've been sold out by bad negotiators. He's going to be the good negotiators. I mean, he's a real you know, he has not built himself a coalition of interest groups, but there is something very transactional in his approach. Um, on the other side, Democrats have shown that particularly younger Democrats are much more philosophical are much more liberal. you know they the idea ten years ago that Democrats would run a democratic socialist and he would become a major player in the primary would have been i think to most elected officials laughable but but now it really happened. And there's a really interesting piece that one of our writers, Andrew Prokop, wrote trying to ask the question of could the Sanders supporters is one reason we're seeing so much agitation at this convention. Could they become sort of a tea party of the left? And he says, yeah, actually they could. And the reason is that... If you're looking at the Democratic Party in the traditional way uh, around agreement on policy, none of this makes any sense. Um, It is a case that Sanders and Clinton more or less agree on policy and definitely agree directionally on policy. It's true Sanders goes further with free college, further with single payer, but they both want to move the country in the same direction. Andrew's done a lot of reporting with Sanders supporters and has interviewed Bernie Sanders and and so on, makes a point that that's actually not what the Sanders movement is about, that there is a much more philosophical view about how politics should be conducted. Uh, And, you know, they see big money politics. They see the Democratic Party's reliance on wealthy donors, on corporations as in and of itself corrupting. And so much like the Tea Party came to see sellout Republicans as the problem, These Sanders supporters, it's very easy to imagine them in a Hillary Clinton administration coming to see Hillary Clinton and more corporatist Democrats as the problem. And you you can really see the split between a younger, more philosophical, more ideological Democratic Party and a somewhat older, more transactional, more interest group oriented Democratic Party that Hillary Clinton represents. And it isn't hard to see that becoming a real fault line in the coming years.
1: So how do you think about, because you've written a lot about... um the forthcoming book, all this research from Grossman Hopkins on these differences between Democrats and Republicans. So does, like, when you watch what's happening now, particularly, I think it's really interesting to think through how that research will have to handle, like, what is happening with Sanders right now, which does seem quite ideologically driven. And, like, I would find, like, healthcare, like, a great example of that, where, yeah, like, they would both support, like Sanders is excited to see Hillary endorse a public option, but really what his supporters want is single payer. Less in the idea of like, oh, let's get some people insurance, but like a philosophy of like everyone should have access to insurance is like a universal.
2: And private right. insurance, shouldn't and exist, private insurance right? should exist, right? Like out. I think that's part of the philosophy. Yes.
1: Um, how do you think about this research that you've been writing about and looking at for a number of years, like as you watch the Sanders insurgency and like, does it kind of throw into question their thesis that these parties are quite different to the core.
2: So as of now, I mean, look, they marshal a lot of really interesting evidence from polling data to how Republican Democratic presidents act in office. Uh, on and on and on. Uh, they they do really interesting mapping of interest groups. So I think they have really they have a really good evidence, at least in a backwards looking way. The parties have been different, and it's not to say the parties are all one way or the other. Obviously, there's a philosophical component to the Democrats, a transactional component to the Repo- Republicans. But there is a there there are differences in degree here. You know, looking forward, I think we don't know. Uh, I think that's a, the hard thing. And we were talking about this a bit earlier with how to how to read the Bernie Sanders convention. I don't think we know yet. Um, I am a little skeptical the Democrats are going to spin off and become like a fully philosophical sort of democratic socialist party could happen, but very well may not. I think that there might be particular things about Hillary Clinton that made the Sanders insurgency more potent. Hillary Clinton is a real representative of this kind of politics in a way Barack Obama, who – practices a very similar form of politics is not right like hillary clinton and barack obama both raised a ton of money from banks but barack obama just gets a lot of shit for it than hillary clinton does and so i think there's something about hillary clinton just being very a little bit culturally out of step and not having a lot of loyalty from younger democrats that ended up giving potency to the sanders campaign i don't know who will run in 2020 but you know, if you imagine it's going to be people like Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and, and so on, you know, even Elizabeth Warren is much more traditional in her approach to politics than Sanders, even though she's able to channel a lot more of what Sanders does. And, and Booker, too, is very much like Clinton, I think, in his approach to politics, but doesn't come across as quite so establishmentarian.
1: And I think some of the things, like when I'm thinking of the question Andrew wrote in his piece, like, will there be a Tea Party of the left? A lot of it is kind of like boring logistics. Can you field candidates and like run this movement? And I think one thing that's pretty clear, we've talked a lot about, you know, what will happen to Republicans if they lose the presidency. Either way, like, they're kicking ass in state politics. Like, they are a dominant force there, really have been. I mean, especially since, like, the 2010 midterms have just been, like, owning state legislatures, 30 of the 50 governors are Republicans. And that's where, you know, you do see the Tea Party activity in the House, and it's certainly been influential, but a lot of it, like, a lot of the influential Tea Party activity is happening in the state legislatures, and that's also where you kind of start to get candidates. Like, when you want to run someone for Congress, when you want to challenge someone from the left, like, you might be looking at your state legislature to get the people who can do that. And the Democrats have, like, just not shown an ability to organize around that. Like, that they have a much smaller... If you want to start this movement, you're going to have a much smaller crop of people, of potential candidates to start the movement with. Um, And that's like not an ideological fact about either party. It's something kind of more structural and logistical, but that kind of seems to be like a gatekeeper function of – of running a new, of, you know, shifting where a party is. I think that's right. I,
2: I think traditional Republicans have been much better at organizing at the state and local level. And I, I think that it's an open question, what happens to the Sanders insurgency after Sanders, right? Currently, Bernie Sanders is still a player, but he's going to go back to the Senate. And he's not traditionally been a great movement builder. Uh, he's a little bit of a lone wolf kind of politician. So we'll have to see. Uh, oftentimes, these things burn out. I remember the efforts to continue Howard Dean's uh, group. I think that it became Democracy for America, if I'm not wrong. You know, there was really an effort to keep the Dean insurgency alive, to keep the Obama movement alive. I'm sure there'll be one to keep the Sanders movement alive, but but it's hard it, and it, it traditionally has not worked that well. It's worth noting that the Tea Party needed a very powerful catalytic event to emerge, right? It emerged amidst the most serious financial crisis in, since the Great Depression and it emerged when the mobilizing enemy was a, a, a very um, policy aggressive African American president. Uh, I'm not accusing folks of racism here, I'm just saying that there was a lot of change simultaneously, demographic change, policy change, economic change. and. There was a sort of pure ability to mobilize against an opposition that had all the power because Democrats controlled everything in Congress. Well,
1: and Obamacare was really like that's when you saw the summer of like the really intense protests. That's when like death panels happened. And this is like a lot of stars aligned where that happened in like August of 2010. And then you had midterms in November um, that you had like a lot of things happening at once that really. And funding for these people as well. Um, right. So a lot of things happening all at once.
2: Yeah. And I just don't know if uh, if we end up in a Hillary Clinton presidency, if that is, you know, the kind of half a loaf stuff you're going to see there. Is that that mobilizing? Um, it, it, it may be, but but I'm a little skeptical. Donald Trump presidency, I, I think, will be a very mobilizing event but i th- i am i th- i don't know what kind of mobilizing event it will be because it won't just be for sort of sanders supporters it'll be a very mobilizing event for i think a much more diverse uh set of democratic interest groups and players and voters and so forth and i don't know what form it would take i think it might just channel into the main democratic party but but it's interesting, and, and I do think that the the thing we are seeing is that the younger Democrats are much more philosophical. And so what the Democratic Party looks like in 20 years, let's put aside two or three or four, but 20 years, I think, is clearly pretty different than today. And I think it's clearly a more, you know, I think it's still pretty policy-heavy, but it's much more ideological. Uh, and, and why do you think that's good or bad, I think, is a bit of an open question, but I think it's important.
1: I agree. All right. I think that's The Weeds for this week.
2: All right. Thank you for listening to The Weeds, a Vox podcast on the Panoply Network. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Uh, We will be back next week.
1: See you then.